This is the Talk Editions podcast. It's the act of people being together and finding that space together that I find most fascinating. Um, and it's the most difficult thing. I mean, I feel like most, I mean, I feel like I'm still learning how to do that. And maybe I'll still be trying to do that the rest of my life. Today, we're really excited to welcome Catherine Lamb to speak with us. Pat Lamb is an active composer exploring the interaction of tone, summations of shapes and shadows, phenomenological expansions, the architecture of the liminal states in between outside and inside, and the long introduction form. And she currently resides in Berlin. Um, I'm Marina Kipperstein, the violinist of talk. I'm Madison Greenstone, fine artist. And hi, Kat. Thanks for joining hi. us. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so this episode is um, going to be released right around the time that talk is giving the live premiere of Star Maker Fragments by Taylor Brooke. That show was on September 17th, but you can check out the album on Talk's Bandcamp. Taylor's music is also dealing with rational intonation. And so we thought, you know, this was actually really good timing to talk to you. Um, because there's this kind of relationship, um, although your music is very different from Taylor's. But yeah, I guess kind of just diving right in, we we were wondering, you know, what is your approach to intonation and your relationship in, with tuning in your music? It it's, seems like such a kind of central element. Yeah, um, I would say it kind of took over um, a kind of att- attention uh, for me towards, towards music since the past 18 or 19 years, it kind of, I went through a shift, um, where it became kind of the focus, but more, not just tuning, but just more like the attention to, um, the practice of it. So the, or the, or the intention of when you have musicians trying to relate to each other in this way and yeah what happens in that both psychological space and the the actual space and um I just it yeah really fascinated me and I was kind of uh very slow into like I I mean finding my own way into it um so I I kind of took a a backwards approach, but then I'll also as like through with my instrument first, just trying to internalize it. So fi- trying to find a practice for myself. Um, so it wasn't just theoretical or um, that, that, I mean, that the both, both of the things were happening at the same time, because uh, it really, cha- it's, for me, it's really like about an inner space in relation to the outer space that you're experiencing with others. And then also, yeah, just in the, I mean, lack of better term, just the space itself, but um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about like the specifics of the shift that you were pointing towards? Like, I know you went to CalArts, you studied with James Tenney, right? Um, Was that sort of instrumental in the shift towards a heightened awareness of intonation and integrating that into, I don't know, this way of hearing or this way of kind of like a life practice <laughs> yeah I feel like he was sort of like the big um uh like turning point for me whereas there were a few things leading up to before I met him 
and um, uh, I say this a lot, but I think it's really true that just the living in India for, because I, I lived in India for seven months um, before going to CalArts, um, studying Hindustani music um, and living with this um, fantastic musician named Jyoti Takar. And she, she studied with Ram Narayan and Vilayat Khan and she, she was a, but her whole life was about music and I learned a lot from her. And um, at that time, I just, I was really trying to, or not trying, it was just a natural thing that I was sort of unlearning all my concepts around what is harmony and what is mode and what is tonality in general and, and, um, and, and the sensations that, so I was having, I was having very sensorial experiences that were very new, but very grounding for me and felt, um, and that, I feel like that was the major turning point first was uh, meeting Jyoti Takar and living with her. And then coming back I, um, to the US after that, I um, then started to, um, do research on music that I hadn't been aware of before. I hadn't been aware of before. And so I, and that led me to James Tenney and that he was teaching at CalArts. And then I went there, but I was too shy at first to directly start working with him. It took me a little while, but then he was so generous that he, he opened, but it was also not just him. It was also, there were a lot of people there and also call, uh, peers um, that were really interesting. And, and, and also, um, Michael Pizarro was there, who studied with Ben Johnston. And I think, and in his experimental music classes, he, I think the intention was really about the listener and about uh, realizing pieces as a collective and different ways to listen in. And um, that also was a, a huge inspiration. And then, and then also around this, there's a lot of like, it was kind of a vortex at that time for me. It was really an important time because I also, then met Mani Kal, who then I went further into um, Indian music, but more into Renaissance music. And he was my link to Zia Mahir and Degar, who's um, still really important for me conceptually and philosophically and musically. And and um, so there, yeah, I feel like there were, but then, if, but James Tenney was the one who really uh, gave me the tools. Uh, and I feel like, uh, yeah, and so I think, yeah, it was, yeah, that was what kind of uh, instigated uh, my exploration for sure. So I guess kind of just talking a little more about your history with composing. So I guess when you went to India, presumably you're already interested in, you know, studying Hindustani music. So, so you, you had a kind of, um, you were drawn to to the tuning of it or the form of it or just the sound in general or how did how did that come about that you decided to to go to India to study yeah I was just telling someone that um I think it was really literally I was at a a more traditional music program and before that and um I was really frustrated by some of like some comments from teachers who for instance I was just starting to listen to people like Ram Narayan or um, Fiji Jog, what was, um, and Rajam, 
amazing violinist. Uh, she's 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 fantastic. Um, and yeah, I was I guess I was listening more to violin or, and string sarangi music uh, bec uh, because I was studying viola at the time in school. And then I um, I would talk about them with my teachers and 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 they would say things like, oh, that music's out of tune or, <laughs> I mean, it was similar. Like I just had up until that point, I had a series of teachers who I just felt like would say things to me that just felt totally wrong, particularly about harmony. <laughs> and I just, yeah, there was something about, I, I, I don't know. I was listening to these recordings and, and having some kind of intuitive response and then somehow being told that, that the music is out of tune just felt wrong. And I felt like I just had to go there and study study it for myself <laughs> um yeah and at that point were you you were already um interested in composing or were you already composing or were you mostly performing yeah I mean I I I started composing around age 11 I think um but it was and I, I was actually at this turning point where I was uh I was in a kind of like a intense uh, piano studio and my teacher was trying to push me into um, doing like, competitions and things like this. And I just wasn't, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and I, and, and so at some point she just, yeah, kicked me out of her studio. Cause I wasn't, I, I, kept, I kept bringing in my own pieces and she was like, well, that's not like, that's not what you're doing here. You need to. Do they still exist? I want to hear some <laughs> 12 year olds, uh, Kat, like, oh, thank you too. The early, the early works for piano. I don't know, maybe it's better as a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then it kind of transitioned where I just, uh, when, when she dropped me, <laughs> then I was just really kind of transitioned into more and more composing for the instrument, but I was mostly just composing for piano. And then, um, so I really actually composed mostly for piano up until I, I went to India and I, wow. and then I, um, yeah, started to get into rational intonation. Then I just stopped it altogether, stopped playing the piano, stopped composing for it. <laughs> hard to reconcile the tuning of the piano. Yeah. Although some exactly. people do it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. or I like mean, Eric Wubbles does some really interesting yeah. stuff with that as well. Yeah. There, I mean, yeah, for sure. Doing cool things with that, but yeah. Yeah, and I think that I, yeah, I'd like to, I'm, I can see coming back to it. In yeah. fact, I'm gonna work with um, this uh, duo um, Sarah, with Sarah Saviet and, and Joseph Houston and awesome. um, violin and piano and, and Joe's a fantastic pianist. And I don't know, we're gonna try some things, see what cool. <laughs> I'm excited to hear that. Um, yeah, well, so um, you were talking, Madison, about the form as well in Hindustani music, yeah? And, right, yeah. yeah, and kind of what you were saying earlier about, you know, realizing pieces as a collective, or like maybe this mode of realization, and also some of the forms of Hindustani music that are like maybe very defined, but also leave room for one to navigate one's way through it, through listening. Um, I think this seems to me from my experience to be a huge aspect of your music where like one's guided through the real time of tuning like by by hearing but also like working within these kind of predetermined forms 
Um, and I was wondering, yeah, if you could talk about that kind of like formal influence or like that sort of underlying nature of it. Yeah, and and do you mean um, the act of composing or the act of realizing a composition? Hmm. Ooh, both. Maybe both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, in a way, yeah, I do feel, I mean, I guess each piece is different. Each piece has its own challenges, but there are, I often uh, work in a way where I set up the compositional framework, like the the kind of rules, I guess you'd say, and like the shape and the the form and the and also like the tuning palette. The I kind of usually set up the all the technical things and the, the things I know I'm working with, and then um, but often like the actual when I'm ready, then the actual act through it is more intuitive and. Um, yeah, kind of just listening in to the, through the material and form um, as though, yeah, just very, like a very slow improvisation in a way, but like with this structure there. Um, but at the same time I do, because um, often I don't, I'm not working with, uh, or the, the timing, not that the timing is free because it's based on the harmonicity or the based on the the activity that's being generated. Like often, uh, I don't know. I just like to describe um, the like um, uh, allowing the sound to like when the sound is generating or going out that determines the rate of movement forward. Um, and that, of course that changes depending on what range you're in, what instruments you're playing. Um, like bassoon and violin would be really different. Like how, it, yeah, and if you're in the lower range of your instrument versus higher and, um, but yeah, how much spectral activity is sounding. So, but the, so in terms of the actual time of, of the tones being sounded and the unfolding of it, that has a bit of openness for the musician to, to I, I like having this element be like an intuitive aspect for the musician to get inside that sound and, and be able to direct it themselves. And I started to using, uh, I started using um, like names for different roles, like the initiator, mm versus the more like the passive voice then and often like you know switching the roles throughout the um throughout a line or throughout a piece or um so that yeah um but I feel like that also like the initiator would maybe uh yeah initiate the sort of forward mo momentum but then the passive role would be like just really like listening into that space and responding and then it could switch but um yeah yeah I saw um so I I've been studying the score for Divisio Spiralis which is uh the the string quartet that uh you wrote for Jack Quartet in 2019 huge piece I think it's it has a running time of 
when they perform it, it's like an hour and 40 minutes or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, 13 movements, I think. Um, and yeah, so I, I've been looking at the score for that. And, and I think the way that you notate rhythm is so interesting. Um, and it is this, it's this passive, active and an active slash passive, right? I think these, these three kinds of note heads that uh, determine the, the role of, uh, like the kind of listening, I guess, that that the uh, performer will be engaging in. So this is, is this kind of what you're talking about with like the initiator? Is yeah. This, yeah. Have you been using that kind of notation in a lot of your pieces recently? Yeah, like, more recently. Um, there, I mean, uh, when it makes sense to, I, I like to utilize that. Uh, and having the three different note heads um, with the, yeah, with the more filled in being, and, and sometimes it's, I, I find it interesting too, because sometimes they don't uh, make sense, like <laughs> logically sense and that's like spatially. And I find this can be interesting too, because it's like you're, you're supposed to take on a role that is the, the active one or the, the one leading the melodic movement. But then uh, the person below you is, is a, like a hollow tongue, which is more active passive, but then it seems like they're moving at the same rate or something but then what is that how does that you know how does that uh influence your yeah. your decisions does it end up uh does it end up being that the, the person who's in the active role like their sense of the intonation becomes more kind of um important or like is the passive voice supposed to uh base their all, you know, because they're they're listening so so hard. Maybe they say like, "Oh, I, I need to raise this a little bit to match the active voice," or is it not really maybe, about the? Maybe it's the other way around. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to say because, um, yeah, I feel like the the active role is more unfolding the har harmonic mm -hmm. space and unfolding the changes and like the initiating the changes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah whoever's sustaining <laughs> I guess they stay has to really like <laughs> because the longer the longer the time you're holding something I guess the more responsibility you have to find that locked in space yeah for sure it's so interesting because you know I, I play a lot in string quartets and we run into this issue all the time um with tuning where um because you know string quartets don't really tune an equal temperament um it's some kind of like, you know, uh, rough, roughly five limit just intonation yeah. system, you know, I mean, right. it's like the, the pure, you know, the perfect intervals need to be really in tune and really pure, I should say. Um, and the thirds are often pure as well. Sometimes the sevenths even, although maybe then we start to get into some arguments. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the we run into this issue a lot where there'll be a, a kind of pedal tone or a, a sustaining tone and then the harmony changes and it used to be the root and then it becomes the third or something like that. And and so then everybody, there's, yeah, there's always this kind of like, how do we solve this issue? Um, and, you know, in, in your music, it, it everything is mathematically so kind of elegantly constructed that that, that shouldn't actually really be an issue if you're playing perfectly in tune um <laughs> at least you know what your role is or yeah, like you exactly, know yeah. it's not, no wondering <laughs> yeah. yeah 
yeah. So anyway, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by the kind of the performance practice, um, how it seems like, you know, in uh, in your music, there, there's such specificity in the intonation. Um, and it seems like it should actually be harder, but in a way it's like more, uh, there's less room for, for interpretation of the intonation in a sense. Um, is that, would you agree with that or? Yeah, and I, I think it's more um, like, what do you, so it becomes the, the focus or the attention, but then my feeling is what that then does like for instance, having the the rhythm be a bit more open mm -hmm. or have a, a, some other elements be a little bit more open then then it gives room for the interpreter to like, then the questions are more about, well, what is a very clear core sound or what is a spectral sound? Cause I also like to like with the, I like to give musicians uh, language or text instead of using, I guess, standard, um, standard, like Ponticello or, yeah. or um, just like, um, or dynamics or, um, because I like to describe the intention of it so that the musicians can decide for themselves amongst themselves, what is the best way to, for us to find this very clear sound together that articulates the harmonic space. Mm -hmm. and. For me, this becomes really interesting because it's it's I feel like when you're focusing so closely on the harmony in that way, all these other things start to come up that sometimes get um, hidden or maybe they're they're usually or maybe the notation takes care of it or the but yeah, just even I mean playing a unison is one of the most difficult things that as you know as a string player like um Every time you change a bow, <laughs> yeah. it's it's like a being out at sea and and it goes <laughs> like you you've just gotten it locked in and then you have to do the bow change and then it's. I think it's not only string instruments. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know, I know. It's not. I was just because we were talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. It's every yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think something that you're pointing towards is like, especially you know, with like the sort of descriptive or poetic interpretable language, like in friction with these mathematical and kind of ideal structures, but then also the sort of like real nitty gritty imperfections of instruments themselves that we're playing. And then also like one's own technical approach or facility or, or whatever. Um, even so, like everything just feels out to sea, like every, like even day to day thinking about like temperature, humidity, or you know how how one's body feels or breath support or anything like this. It always it, it starts to feel like a fresh approach every time. So that like the sonority or the resonance or like a kind of composite timbre in real time has to be discovered anew, even when one is bringing in experience with the music or experience yeah. with rational intonation, yeah. and even the acoustic of the yeah. and all of these external factors better yeah 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 I mean usually clarinetists don't like <laughs> don't like <laughs> um, playing my music <laughs> it's just the bass clarinet 
if it was a B flat clarinet, it'd be a totally different, <laughs> totally different thing. <laughs> but no, I, I was reading back through um, kind of my notes around preparing that piece, um, which I had the great fortune of working with you on like pretty extent, like kind of extensively um, in 2016. And then another clarinetist approached me about it and was like, what fingerings do you use for the last three pages? And I was like, it's not about the fingerings. And I, was like, <laughs> and I was like, you have to get into this state of mind and like, you have to hear it with your embouchure. And then it's the process of tuning, not getting it in tune right away and then listening to the timbre. And then like weird things like, oh, the cello seventh partial is sharp, but then it's not in tune in relation to the violins, like right. 21st partial. So even like things that seem like they should be fixed, like, intervals or ratios actually are like highly contingent and like living upon the breath or the bow or the sort of innate tendencies of the instrument which yeah yeah that's the thing I mean um yeah that's all it's it's in the end how how everybody relates to each other and their instrument and yeah um because yeah things are like you can't predict what kind of harmonic it'll be or yeah exactly what you said <laughs> but there's I mean there's a really human element to your music as well that I mean I think maybe because you have a because you're also a performer and you understand all of the like all of these considerations of real world uh variability at play into the the interpretation of the music, I think, and and also just the construct the, the construction of the music leaves space for that. Um, and I was I was actually wondering, do you ever write electronic music? Like, do you ever uh, work in fixed media? Yeah, I mean, uh, fixed media is in um, like um, uh, like a set sound. I mean, I I I I've worked a lot with electronics, but and um, I'm usually working with variability, so it's not like, a, like I don't have any electronic pieces that are fixed in terms of time. Like I, I still like this openness, like for instance, in Super Collider, how you can, um, you can indicate, okay, it's between 12 and 17 seconds, let's say. So like each time, even if you just let the computer spit out the code and play the sounds, it will always have some variability. Um, is this what you mean or? Yeah, no, I guess I'm, so what I'm, what I'm wondering is, you know, as a, as a composer, is the human element, uh, like what is the, what is the role of the human element? And, and I know this might change in different pieces, but, you know, if you were just interested in in having like exactly perfect intonation and, you know, like it, it doesn't strike me that that's kind of the main goal of your music is to right. just execute, um, you know, the exact ratios uh, right. in, perfect, in perfect balance and all that, you know, like it's there's this kind of living and breathing aspect to it and kind of um, all of the variations in timbre that happen when you're listening and adjusting and, and these kind of micro um, variations that that happen in a live performance. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And I guess because my, my in to like my own practice with it has always been an acoustic one. Yeah. And I find that's always been what's interested me the most. And even if I'm later when I started to use electronics as tools, it was more as something um, to sound in relation. So it was still, there was like the voice or the instrument with the electronics and, um, and to me it was more, what was more interesting was the, what would happen in between mm-hmm. and, and not, not the electric, I mean, because of course you can set up things with electronics, which still have that, like, especially with analog, you get drifts and things move around or, but even with um, digital synthesis issues come up, but the, but I guess the, the, the main thing is I, I find it, even though it can help as, as a tool space, like the, the exactness of, of sounding, uh, the relationships uh, is not, I don't know, it just is not what interests me. It's, it's the like, it's the, it's the tuning in or the, the, act, the act of, I mean, maybe you just said this, but it's the act of people being together and finding that space together that I find most fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the most difficult thing. I mean, I, th- I feel like most, I mean, I feel like I'm still learning how to do that and maybe I'll still be trying to do that the rest of my life <laughs> or something. And um, it's, yeah, it's a really difficult thing, but it's so incredible to do that with others. And I, um, there's something about that that feels very powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, oh, so, okay, I have one piece that's more recent that I worked on with um, uh, two electronic musicians, Brian Eubanks and Xavier Lopez. And, um, and we were first going to do an analog um, piece, but then it wasn't exact enough. So then we went to digital synthesis, but the I feel like there's still this human element because that piece is really different than uh, most of, my other pieces because it's really dealing with pulses and and there's all this layering that it's quite complex um it's a it's like setting up these shapes that build on each other these little building blocks and then they get set off and then they they go through arps and they kind of slow down and open and so there's all these things that um but they have to do it all manually so they and they have to really follow each other and be really locked in and so it's actually actually it's maybe my most, maybe then it, the human aspect is more the rhythmic intention because they don't, of course they're not, I mean, they have to listen in, but in a different way, like more as um, tuning into the space or the amplitude to each other or the, you know, filling out those those things. But of course, you know, they can just play it on the keyboard, the tuning's there, but then the, but I'm still interested in that, like trying to articulate together in, in real time as as musicians so I mean that's really my one piece that feels the most electronic as electronic piece but it's still what I find interesting about it is the human element like the these polyrhythms that kind of happen are are really intuitive that but are happening because of the intense intense focus that they have um moment to moment it seems like hearing you describe these frameworks of performance and interpersonal relationships that there's like an enormous amount of empathy that's needed in order to 
work on and perform your music this like like almost kind of like a selfless listening like to the other people or person but also to the composite in a way and I yeah I wonder if that's something that you're deliberately setting out to create those kinds of social structures or if it's something that kind of naturally arises or if it's more intuitive or yeah I think I'm I'm definitely always been interested in this kind of intimacy space that um music creates and I feel like I don't know maybe it's a really generic and traditional thing to say but I really feel like music is about people being together and having having an experience together and but then through that like I I mean I'm um I don't think my work is inherently political it's not I mean I'm not like solving political issues through that music but there is something about the I do want this um I don't know I'm, I'm really interested in um people experiencing things together and finding that kind of neutral space that allows this other thing to blossom and even if you have okay like we were saying earlier like that more active role or even if you have the like your part has more tones or more but it's still because it's the way I like to word the text is that the harmonic space is leading everything. So it's it's like you're, even if you're the one moving it along, it's you're articulating what's around you. And it's not that it rises above, it's more, it should be embedded into the system that is something that collectively has to be made. Like I was, I was talking to um, my cousin who's a scientist and we were talking about, uh, because yeah she was talking about like working in the laboratory and and just that um her experience with that and like how um sometimes the most you the most accurate spaces are can only be achieved through collective means even if it seems in the moment it's like um you're losing control or you know sometimes it's like you want to be like like take all the control of yourself as the individual because I, I can do it better on my own terms. But then, but actually when you, like for instance, I mean, even just um, as a string player, <laughs> sorry to, but like playing a double stop for instance, um, I mean, this is a simple example, but um, when you're playing in a group and then suddenly you're trying to tune like one, one tone against another, someone else's tone, you have, more potential to really lock the sound through your collective, like this point over here to that point over there, if you're both like there together and, and have the same goal. <laughs> but if, if you then start to play, if one of you starts to play it as a double stop, then suddenly the attention goes back to the individual um, and pulls away for a moment from the collective. This is just my, my feeling that happens. And of course, I mean, I write double stops in my music, but um, <laughs> but there but there is this interesting pull, push and pull of like the individual at the collective that I think happens where the these sort of yeah, inner spirals and then outward spirals that occur all the time. Um, but maybe it's just an interesting thing to be aware of, or I like I like thinking about these things in that way. Like how how are different, yeah, roles and intentions and how that influences all the other other things. <laughs> yeah, talking about the spiral, 
so uh, um, <laughs> viral imagery. This brings me back to Divizio Sorellas um, <laughs> because you uh, you use Irv Wilson's um, uh, proof of the harmonic series as a logarithmic spiral, um, kind of as the jumping off point for that. And that's like the album cover. And it's um, really, really uh, one of my favorite documents that I just want to take a moment. Where did I put it? Uh, I want to take a moment for our listeners to just read his little um, <laughs> preface to that, because it's like my favorite thing that's ever that I've ever discovered in, uh, in my scholarly uh, rabbit hole. Um, October 25th, 1963. This is a letter to Ivor Derrick and uh, John Chalmers from Irvin Wilson. He says, I know it's a drag, babies, to be brought down by pseudo-erudite, like double wow, you know what I mean? Rantings on Mantisi of logs, base two, and all that jazz, when all we really want to do is make way out sounds. But there is a little dirty work to be done before we can all get stoned on harmonics. So here we go, like a herd of turtles. Ugh. <laughs> Sorry, I just Great reading. I, thank you. I just I I came across this document. Um, <laughs> all the way down. <laughs> turtles all the way down. I I came across this document. I was just like so charmed by it and was studying it. And then I then I, and I had already heard Divizio Spiralis at that point. I I think I listened to the live stream premiere um, when they did it in 2019. Um, so I had already heard the piece, but I hadn't. I, I didn't read the program note at the time and, and I didn't put it together until a little, like a few months later that this, uh, that this gem was the inspiration. <laughs> Obviously, I, I I don't know how much that preface was the inspiration for this. <laughs> getting stoned on harmonics. Getting stoned on harmonics. <laughs> but I was just, I was wondering, you know, um, kind of the, the, you, you talk about the spiral in a lot of a lot of ways actually it's it's like the the spiral of the sound kind of coming together and then there's also like this this you know logical proof that uh you know that that's the harmonic series as a spiral and I was just I was wondering in the spiritual spiral the spiritual spiral <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know could you could you talk a little bit about um about the spiral for you like the image of the spiral and the yeah this kind of construction and how that plays into your music. Yeah. Well, yeah, first of all, first of all, I came across the image before the text, but then I did read the text later and and I thought it was really great. <laughs> but it wasn't my re it wasn't the reason for <laughs> um no, actually I just felt like um yeah when I saw that it because I, I had seen a lot of his lattices before and I know a, a lot of people have worked with lattices and um and I've always really liked, yeah, yeah, different geometric drawings of, I mean, he has a million or you know, whatever. Um, and, and also, I mean, Tenny has really beautiful geometric realizations of how to talk about tunings and things. But, um, but there was something about the spiral itself that was so um, grounding in terms of, I think for me, it actually first started more as, um, oh, this is a great way um, to just teach um, or learn um, about how the overtone series is an entity that generates all this uh, harmonic space already. And it, um, and I feel like this somehow 
it really works well with the spiral. Um, and I always kind of thought of it as that, like I always attach numbers to spirals. And I always like saw that as, as a kid, I just had these images of spirals um, with numbers, like when I was learning, first learning math and um, I just, yeah, I saw spirals. And then I, um, but for me, it, I, I think there's also just something very uh, complete about, I mean, it's also, it, it helps, I think, pull away from the linear space or the, the horizontal, vertical um, um, distinction that, that, oh, this, maybe it is a line, but it's all keeps circling back. And so if um, thinking more that the octave, so anytime like you have the two, four, eight, 16, that you can really visually see where it comes back to that nodal position. Mm -hmm but it's an octave higher and then an octave higher. And then it collects, like e through each octave, it's collecting points along the way. And this is something that, um, I mean, it just, it just is very, uh, it makes a lot of logical sense, but also there's this um, great intuitive thing. Cause I, I got really obsessed around that time with collecting images of spirals. <laughs> and um, I did this, lecture, I think the first one was at the Hague, I think. And I, um, it was for this, uh, um, oh, it was something for Peter, it was like a, a, a seminar around Peter Oblinger's work actually, but then I, I was, uh, or maybe it was a different thing anyway, but I did this, I started doing these lectures where there'd be this, um, like just many, 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 many spirals behind me in the in the big screen and just kind of shifting through and and these are spirals that are like from different time periods in history to modern times from like artists to scientists to just images of nature to mundane things um plants insects like um stairwells you know just like every and but also the um and just um just to like think for a moment, like, wow, there's so every, or most people I know have some uh, immediate connection to that image. There's something very uh, like elemental. Um, and most artists have like a phase where they have <laughs> some kind of spiral involved. Maybe not Agnes Martin, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, spirals, your question about, yeah. I don't know. And there's a lot of like in the writing, like also like, um, also the forms and in, in getting back to Indian classical music, I feel like the spore, the, the, spore, the, the form is really a spiral. <laughs> it's a spore and a spiral. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but like the, um, like starting from the center and, and unfolding the material out and out and out and unwinding it. Um, and it's something that I've always been drawn to as a form, um, this kind of slow unfolding. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so um, probably a lot of the people who are listening right now are musicians or just interested in music. 
probably most people listening are interested in music, especially <laughs> if they're still listening at this point. They stumbled across the podcast and they stuck around for this long. Um, and yeah, you know, we were wondering is, do you have any kind of tips for performers who are interested in deepening their relationship with rational intonation and in general with the kind of the performance practice of of uh, listening in this way and, and in tuning with a with a group like do you have any tips I know that you um you have a group the harmonic space orchestra in Berlin um which seems like the most fun thing in the world that you just <laughs> hang out and like drone together um sounds great but I mean yeah do you have any that and that for me that was kind of how I started getting into it was because my um my friend Austin Wellman who's in the mm -hmm. Jack Quartet um we would just hang out and drone out on on intervals and just try to listen and and you know this was kind of he was at that point he was already deeper into his practice of rational intonation and um he was very generous with kind of helping me to to deepen my own practice in that way but yeah do you do you have any tips and tricks yeah i mean um i think it so depends on yeah what instrument you play what or, or also like your um cuz i feel like everyone has their own perceptual um, like, because in that group, the Harmonic Space Orchestra, it's kind of like a research group. And for one year, we just, so we just finished, we're going to start up again. I'm curious where it goes. But for one year, we decided to just like meet on Thursday mornings, whoever was in town. And it's a bunch of different people. So you always get different orchestration every, every week. And it was like, not to work on repertoire, but just to talk about like like come up collectively with exercises or or maybe someone would bring an exercise idea and then the sh the group would kind of try things and change it and um and talk about it and describe it and it's really i always find it fascinating that everyone's perspective is so different and what they're listening into is so different and sometimes some people focus in on like oh did you hear that thing and then someone else is like oh i didn't hear it but i heard this thing and then um and it's and like if you're yeah playing a trombone like how that's like resonating your <laughs> whole you know and, and and versus yeah if you have an instrument that's like what the sound is coming up or um yeah or versus being set out sent sent out um but i've been learning so much from that group just about orchestration by simply getting together with uh like-minded people or, or, or even just, yeah, friends who are interested in the, the subject and trying things. And that's, I mean, I think that's the number one, the biggest, <laughs> I mean, it's a simple thing to say, but like you just said, um, meeting with Austin and, and just playing together, like two violins, like, it's like, great. Um, but um, that's actually something beyond that. I'm, I am slowly trying to, um, work on a, a kind of methodology book. Oh, cool. But it's a kind of at the beginning stages that would do exactly what you're asking, like try, try to, or just, or just give some, not solve things for everybody or not like say, this is the way, or this is the, 
this is the method, but more just um, to sh have some possible entry points or some possible kind of exercises that could also be pieces. And because um, some of it is just really like, you just decide a path or you decide, I mean, I think with like um, how um, in Divisio Spiralis, I use the 10 Hertz fundamental. Um, and I, I like to use it whenever it makes sense to in pieces now, but sometimes it doesn't make sense to use that. Um, but what I like about it is that, again, you can just go straight to the partial logic over that 10 Hertz. So if you, if you just have the partial notation, you just have the number and then you add a zero to it and there's your frequency. Oh, that's and, that can, yeah. and that can help pull you away from the, the sense, like deviation thinking that, um, so that you can kind of divorce yourself from letter names and like the piano keys and, and just start to conceptualize it in a different way. And I think however that is for you, I feel like maybe the first challenge is just trying to um, find a different way to conceptualize harmonic space and, and maybe get outside of also things that, that sort of contradict or go against common theoretical discussion, like common uh, music theory, harmony, voice leading things that kind of can get in the way of that. Um, and so whatever tool you can, for, for me, I just find that the, the, ten, the series of 10 Hertz is really nice because also you can get it to very complicated things really fast in your, in your uh, listening range, sounding range, sounding and listening range. Um, and then there's all these exercises you can build off of that. I mean, just simply like sounding the three to two together. Um, it's not clear whether we do hear summation tones really loudly or not, but sometimes I think we do. But for instance, the like you can just do like simple arithmetic, like three plus two equals five. And then you can sound the three and the two and the five and hear how that articulates the sound and then you and then the three to two and the six, which is the first common partial, or and then you can do the whole like generative off of the six because there's a lot of common alignments that happen, or then you have the difference tone of the one, three minus two equals one. <laughs> and it's just, that's what, uh, I don't know, I like that reminding musicians that it's really simple arithmetic. Um, the only complicated math is just when you have to um, compare it to equal temperament. Yeah. Um, otherwise, if you're just going by the numbers, it's all just basic stuff. And um, and to use that, to just to try it out. Um, and if you have a frequency generator, you can use that. But again, it uh, for me, it's like not just about like playing the tones on your computer, but or on your synthesizer, but actually sounding against that and and searching for it, like the act of searching. And then also the act, like when you're a bit off and you, and then you hear when it locks in this sort of, yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Thank you. Do you have any? <laughs> that, yeah, that's so super helpful. helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have anything coming up or that you're working on right now that I know you said you're working on this kind of method book? Um, but do you, yeah, do you have anything coming up that you want to plug or that you're excited about <laughs> and you want to talk about? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in between things at the moment. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, 
I'm just like today I'm revisiting this old piece for a friend's art opening so then I'm I got distracted but I'm I'm just kind of because I I just um not finished but sort of did the first premiere of this piece with these uh Corsican polyphonic singers an ensemble resonance and that was a really like a a special treat because it was really it was very um unusual different from what I normally do but the working with the traditional Corsican singers was really interesting <laughs> cool. um but yeah I'm I'm just I'm just sort of at this stage where I'm, I'm just I just got back to Berlin and I'm I have new projects coming up but I don't feel like they're at the stage of yeah they're just like like just transitioning into new yeah. cool. <laughs> well do you have any oh the ghost ensemble yeah oh the ghost ensemble. yeah they're gonna um I'm I'm actually yeah like completing that piece right now um I should mention that because that's happening. I think it'll happen in New York in December. Oh, oh great! Cool. Okay, everybody. <laughs> Unless it's Massachusetts, but I think it's I think it's New York. Okay, if well, we can uh, put a link to the show in our uh, episode notes. People. Yeah. Want. Yeah. I think it's being defined soon. Yeah. So maybe we won't put a link <laughs> in our episode notes, but depends on when the episode comes out. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> How fast I edit this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Spiraling <laughs> right now. <laughs> um cool. I I think that's kind of I mean there's always there's always more. Yeah, we could always talk yeah. about more. <laughs> but I think we've reached a good kind of cadence point. Yeah. Oh, should we do any of our favorite game? Oh geez, I haven't prepared for the favorite game. Me neither, but I feel like <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> Just, we might not use this. Uh yeah, but it's fun anyways. So um, this final segment uh, is is something we like to, a game we like to play with people called Would You Rather? Um, <laughs> so um, Catherine Lamb, <laughs> would you rather um, live in a, a, like a space colony or live in a deep sea colony? Oh, <laughs> just randomly came up with that. <laughs> That's a really hard one because I, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, for how long? Like your whole life? Like for, for the rest of your life. Like you, you have yeah. had this, the, there's a climate catastrophe. We can no longer be on land. Um, <laughs> so next week. You're you're gonna either move to to the space colony or the deep sea colony. I guess I'd have to pick the space colony. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Why why would you pick the space colony? Maybe because of the perspective it would bring. Like the I don't know. And also, which it also sounds horrifying, but the, it sounds even more horrifying to be at the bottom of the ocean. I don't know why. Yeah. Just like the pressure. Like yeah. well, I guess both are. Yeah, but some. But also just to be out in outer space must be so fascinating. <laughs> but I mean, I imagine being underwater is also, yeah, all the weird lit up creatures that you might find. Yeah. But it seems even darker down there. Like, yeah. 
I don't know. In space, you'd be more proximate to the stars. Yeah. Other celestial bodies. Yeah. You could view things like have a telescope and study the stars. <laughs> okay, next question. Would you rather have, um, would you rather that your legs were also arms or that your arms were also legs? Oh. Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, probably. Uh, probably my legs also arms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It would make getting around a little more taxing probably, but also like imagine how good at viola you'd be. Yeah. You could do all kinds of stuff that <laughs> we haven't even imagined with four arms. <laughs> Madison looks horrified right now. <laughs> do you have any? Um, I mean, those are really hard to follow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like pulling them out of, you know, pulling them out of the air and no, sometimes trying gotta, to be super yeah. considered. Yeah. And, yeah. You know. Cool. Well, um, <laughs> thank you so much for meeting with us. Thank you. It was so good. Yeah. Time. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for having me. That was fun. <laughs> This has been the Talk Editions podcast, episode 28 with Catherine Lamb. The music in today's episode was by Catherine Lamb and is linked in the show notes. Today's episode was produced by Madison Greenstone and Marina Kipperstein and edited by me, Marina. If you like the Talk Editions podcast, please subscribe rate, review us, and tell your friends. We'll be back at you soon with more episodes. Thanks for listening.